Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked for a favour. "'What is it you want?' he asked. She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom.' "'You don't know what you are asking,' Jesus said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I am going to drink?' "'We can,' they answered. Jesus said to them, "'You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant.' These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Good evening, everyone. Great to be with you tonight uh, to look at that passage that we just had read, Matthew chapter 20, 17 to 34. It'll be great if you can grab your Bible back out because we'll be working our way through this passage. Why is the cross the symbol of the Christian church? Why the cross? I think, easy, Jesus died on the cross to save us. Easy answer to start with, Jeff. Uh, But why not a cup? (laughs) Why not? not? (laughs) Imagine a picture of a cup flashing (laughs) onto the screen. Wait, I need to turn it on. Yeah. Why not a cup? Uh, Why not a chair? Why not a fridge? Uh, Why not a suitcase full of money? Uh, Why not any of those things? Why a cross? Tonight we're going to find out why. Uh, Why uh, all those things, all those other things, do make sense in a way. Uh, But tonight we're going to look again at why the cross is our symbol. And I hope that it turns out to be more than what you think, more than just that simple answer, because Jesus died on the cross. Uh, This is the the final of our series in Matthew's Gospel for this year. Uh, You can tell that we're not at the end of Matthew just yet, uh, but we're going to break here and finish it off in second semester next year. Now, the reason we're breaking here is because it's a crucial moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's heading to Jerusalem. 
Have a look at this passage uh, from verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. See that? Uh, It's obviously the point. They're going up to Jerusalem. This is a key moment. Ever since chapter 16, Jesus has been saying that he must go up. Uh, He must go up to Jerusalem. Twice before, he's told us why, that he has to go up in order to suffer, be killed, and then rise again. And now we're at the point, he's heading there to Jerusalem. Uh, They're with the crowds going up to the festival at the temple. And uh, the the roads would have been full of people going up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus takes his disciples aside privately. And he says, one last time, this is what's going to happen. Verse 18, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. They're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, this decisive moment in Jesus' life. His death right there in front of him. He shares it with his, his disciples. Each step taking him closer to that death. And yet the disciples are still way off. They are way off. Uh, Enter James and John with their mother. Uh, They have a favour to ask. Um, You can tell this comes from James and John, not really from their mother, because when Jesus answers, he doesn't answer the mother, he directs his response to the boys. Verse 22, uh, the you there is plural. You do not know what you're asking, you two. Uh, But the, the request comes from their mother. Now, why do you ask your mum to ask, you, ask for something for you? Uh, why do you do that? Do they think that somehow Jesus is more likely to grant their request if their mum asks? Here, mum, go on, ask this. Maybe they're trying to mask their naked ambition because it's a power grab, isn't it? The seats to the right and left of the king were the seats of power. Uh, and... That's what they want. They want to be the ones in charge. We want to be vice presidents. Uh, it's a preemptive strike. It's kind of they're playing politics at this point. They're they're kind of negotiating their way in to get the pre-selection for these prime seats. Uh, at Jesus left and right. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of the King. He's going to be King, and we want to be right there on stage with him. They're getting closer to Jerusalem, but the disciples are still way off. It's, uh, it's kind of like they, they haven't been listening, they haven't heard a thing. Uh, Jesus is here talking about his betrayal and his death, and they've just heard kingdom, thrones. This is the exact reason why I never said anything in shoots at uni, because I was so scared that I would say something like this, that would uh, reveal the fact that I hadn't learned anything to this point, I hadn't been listening and uh, hadn't understood a word. No, I was way smarter than that. I just kept my mouth shut, I bottled it all up inside, whatever I didn't understand, I just kept it quiet, and then I wrote it down in exams. Just boom, (laughs) just on the page. James and John have just kind of jumped straight into it, bumbled their way in. Have a look at Jesus' response, verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. 
Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? See, they haven't got it yet. They haven't got what's going to happen to Jesus. As he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to drink a cup. Now, that image of a cup in the Bible is, is sometimes used to mean uh, to take God's punishment for sin. And, but the image can also just mean an image of, of suffering, to, to drink a, a cup. Sometimes it's a cup of joy, sometimes a cup of sorrow. And here it, it seems like it's a cup of, of persecution, what Jesus is going to go and face in Jerusalem. And so he asks, can you face that? Will you suffer for my sake? Can you drink the cup? And they're like, yep, yep, definitely. Yep, we'll, whatever you're drinking, we'll drink it as well. Yeah, like a cup of diamonds. It'll be fantastic. They don't get it. And yet Jesus knows, doesn't he? he? He knows that one day the Spirit will change them. They will be new men. And they will, will willingly, joyfully drink the cup of suffering for Jesus' sake. But right now, they don't know what they're asking. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and they're asking to sit at the the left and right. And they don't quite get what that means. He says, to be at my right and my left in Jerusalem, you don't get to sit there, you have to hang there. Those spots get taken at Jesus' crucifixion. And James and John don't know what they're asking. They haven't got it yet. I think we don't get it either a lot of the time. We don't get that to ask to be great in God's kingdom, to, to, be, to ask to be someone of significance is, is to ask for suffering. To pray for a friend, for a, a little brother or sister, someone in your family to become a Christian is, is to pray that in some way in this life, Uh, they will suffer for the Lord. That's what it means to follow him. It includes suffering as well. It means taking the way of the cross. It means in some small or large way, drinking the cup that Jesus drank. And here we go. James and John are asking for the greatest slice of that. We want to be the prime guys And Jesus says, you don't, you don't understand what you're inviting here. This is a cross-shaped kingdom. They don't get it, but the other ten don't get it either. Uh, see their reaction, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Uh, not upset because they've understood what Jesus is on about. No, upset because they didn't think of it first. Ah, oh, pipped at the post. Uh, it's like a kid in primary school. Miss, miss. They're cheating. If only I'd thought to cheat like that, it would have been great. And Jesus says, okay, verse 25, Jesus called them together. Let's stop. Let's get together. Let's work this out. Here he is teaching them a masterclass on the Christian life. And the Christian life is, is flipped upside down. It's the opposite of what the world expects. And here's what he says to his disciples, these ones who would be great in his kingdom. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
He says, my disciples must not be like the world. Uh, the, the Gentiles, they, they lord it over them. Uh, those two words there that the NIV translates as lord it over and exercise authority, they begin with the prefix down. Literally, they downlord. They downrule. That's what the Gentiles do. They bear down on people. They shove it down their throats. And that's how they worked. That's how the, the Gentile world works. The, Rome was the superpower. They had absolute rule. And they held people down with it. And that's the way of the world, isn't it? In the last uh, month, we've seen that abuse of power uh, exposed. In Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein, uh, one of the most powerful movie producers over the past couple of decades, uh, one of the great ones, uh, I read, thanked as many times as God in the Academy Award speeches over the last uh, 20 years. Only now we see the allegations of how he used that power, holding it over young actresses who wanted to get ahead, bullying and exploiting people, using that position, that influence that he had to do whatever he wanted. And then we find out that he's just the tip of the iceberg, that actually anyone with any modicum of power is using it to exploit other people. And Jesus says to his disciples, not so with you. Not so with you. The Christian life has to be deliberately opposite that. Not so with you. Uh, my New Testament lecturer at Trinity Theological College, uh, he used to say that every person in ministry should have those four words written on a plaque above their office door. Not so with you. Can't be like that. What does it look like instead? Jesus goes on, verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Christian greatness happens at the bottom. That's where it takes place, at the bottom. Uh, That verse, verses 26 and 27, it means exactly what it sounds like. Uh, A servant was responsible for the menial tasks of the household, dealing with the waste, all the caring jobs, the the little kids, the elderly, uh, all the cooking, cleaning up. Uh, that was just what it was. It was the, the menial chores. Um, our old rector, Kanishka, uh, once told me this story. Uh, he was at a, a big event, quite a, a fancy one, uh, for an organisation called the Overseas Council of Australia. They uh, raise money to support uh, Bible colleges overseas in the developing world, um, recognising that The Western world can raise a lot of money and it can go a long way in the developing world to to raise up Christian leaders. And uh, it's kind of a... They operate in the high end of town. They they want many figures. They they want five-figure donations, not uh, a few bucks here and there. So a kind of fancy place uh, or kind of top-end-of-town organisation. And the dinner was in a fancy place. And Kanishka comes across um, the, the president, the person who's in charge of this organisation around Australia. And he's there uh, setting out the chairs. 
And he said to Kanishka, it doesn't matter where you go in Christian ministry, you're always stacking chairs. You're always stacking chairs because that's what greatness looks like for the Christian. That's what it looks like. It means to serve, to do whatever needs to be done, to set out the chairs. Now, it's one thing to nod along to that and think, yeah, that is great, you know, to serve like that. But then it's another thing to really believe it, to, to, to know that this is, this is worthwhile, this is great in the eyes of the Lord when you're cleaning a toilet. And some of you are going to do that on camping ground, on training ground. But Jesus is telling us, turn your idea of greatness on its head. Turn it upside down. Servants do the menial work, uh, but whoever wants to be first must be the slave. Uh, not just a servant, but a slave. The thing with slaves is, uh, they, it wasn't just that they had the worst job, it was the fact they didn't get a choice. They belonged to the other. I once uh, walked into a church and the minister of that church was on his hands and knees cleaning out the fridge. Uh, this is a lovely fridge. Communal fridges are actually the worst thing in the universe. Now, you know this from the experience that you've had, you know, at, at a workplace, here at uni, the, the kind of communal fridge, everyone owns something and then no one does and it just gets put there and no one knows its provenance and... And who is ever going to come back for it? And so you leave it and it just gets skanky and mouldy. And uh, this guy was on his hands and knees, not just kind of throwing out the off milk, but the, the mouldy, rotten fruit, stuff just making you gag. And that's what greatness looks like in the kingdom. That's what it looks like. That wasn't his job, but he, was, he knew he was a slave, that he belonged to the other. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you are not your own. To be a Christian is uh, to be your brother and sister's slave. And the reason we do that, the reason it's like that, is because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It isn't some technique, some leadership strategy uh, to get people on side. If you just kind of uh, serve them a little bit first, then uh, they'll get on board with you. No, we serve. We sacrifice because Jesus has already set that pattern. Already set that pattern for us. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The key phrase there is just as. Just as, in the same manner. And it's all the more powerful because Jesus is the Son of Man, we're told. That's a title of divine rule. You would expect the Son of Man to be served. James and John certainly thought that the Son of Man was going to be served and they wanted to get in on it. But he says it's the opposite. He came to serve, to do the menial jobs, to care for the little ones and to give himself for the other to give his life as a ransom for many, he's told, we're told. He says his life is going to be a ransom. Now, uh, every couple of years, uh, something like this happens. You, you hear about an expat Aussie uh, getting uh, captured 
taken overseas uh, in East Africa. There was one a few years back in the Philippines. And the captors demand money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for this person's life. And you know that if a payment isn't made, then that person, that's it. They're facing death. And according to the Bible, that's our situation. We're we're captive. Captive to our own sin and our sinful desires. Enslaved to our own self-rule. And so we're facing death. And the Bible says we need a ransom. A payment to be made to set us free from our self-rule. And that's why Jesus says he's come, as a ransom for many. A ransom that will pay the penalty that we face, the penalty of death. And he's just spoken about it. It's the cross, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going up to be handed over, condemned, mocked, spat on, flogged, killed. He's paying our ransom. So, in a way, all of those pictures tell us something about the Christian life, something about the life of Jesus. But in the end, it's the cross. The cross is our symbol. So here's two essential things for Christians to know about the cross. Two essential things to know. The first is that the cross saves us. Now, that might seem ultra-basic, right? The cross saves us. But that's what it means for Jesus to be a ransom. The, the, the cross is where he pays that, that ransom for us, to set us free. His death wins our release. The cross saves us. That's the first one. But the second one is important, and it's in this passage as well. We see it here, that the cross is the pattern for the Christian life. The cross is also the pattern for the Christian life. It's not just the thing that saves us. It's also the model that we follow. But it's so easy to miss that that is the shape of the Christian life. The disciples missed it. They were all the way up to Jerusalem and they'd missed it. We miss it in so many ways. But the cross is our pattern. It sets the pattern for us because it sets the pattern for suffering. Uh, Like Jesus, like the disciples after him, we should expect to suffer. That's our symbol. We should expect opposition from our world because if they hated our Lord, then at times they will hate us too. The cross sets a pattern for us, a pattern of suffering. And it also sets the pattern of serving. Just as uh, the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve, that is the pattern that we follow the pattern of the cross. We give ourselves for the sake of the other. That is the pattern that we follow. And that needs to be what shapes our life, our life as individuals and our life together. Uh, here at Union Church, we talk about ourselves as, as being a train and send church. That is, we acknowledge that people don't normally stay around at Union Church for 20 or 30 years the way they might do at other churches. And so our aim is to be a church uh, where we train ourselves in the Christian life and then uh, look to where we might go next, where God might have us uh, serve beyond here. Uh, So, for instance, 
Uh, just recently, Dan and Rachel George, who some of us will remember, uh, recently moved to Mauritius uh, to live and work there to see how they might uh, serve the church in that country with few Christians around. Very exciting thing, but uh, they've kind of gone on beyond us. And I think that under God, that kind of thing can have an amazing impact. But we need to stop and think, what do we mean by train? When we say train and send, what do we mean by train? Because we don't just mean gather skills, uh, like learn how to lead a Bible study or uh, get some experience in youth ministry. Those things are important, but that's not what uh, we mean. We need to be training ourselves like this. Training ourselves to be slaves. That's who we're sending out. Slaves. People who are prepared for suffering. People who are ready to be servants. Uh, at Union Church, we have an internship program, a two-year ministry training program. But it's not just about getting skills, learning these killer ministry tricks. No, you just pack the trailer more. That's all it's about. It's, it's about training to be slaves. That's what our communal life needs to be about. We follow Jesus' pattern. People who live cross-shaped lives. And I think in Jesus' economy, uh, that is something that can have a profound impact uh, way beyond Union Church. This section finishes with Jesus giving us a a real-life example of this. Uh, This is what it looks like, verse 29. Uh, The crowds are pushing Jesus and the disciples. They're, They're kind of going up the mountain, up to Jerusalem. Uh, from the town of Jericho. And on the way, there's two blind men sitting by the side. Uh, They're little ones, right? They're unimportant in the eyes of the world. And you see that because the crowd don't even think they're important. The the two men cry out, son son of David, help, have mercy on us. And the crowd's like, "Be, be quiet. Shh, stop being annoying. But Jesus stops and he goes over and he touches these men, these little ones in the eyes of the world, annoying to the crowds, forgotten by the world, but important to Jesus. And then they see and they follow him. And where do they follow him? Well, they follow him up the hill, don't they? They follow him up to Jerusalem, up to the festival, up eventually to the cross. That's where Jesus is heading, the place that defines the Christian life. They follow him and he heads to the cross. And if they saw him there, they would see the pattern for their life as followers of King Jesus. They would see the pattern of suffering that they would follow and the pattern of service.